Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. This past Saturday, December 16th, dozens of bird watchers fanned out across Madison, Milwaukee, and Richland Center to take part in the annual Audubon Christmas Bird Count. This early winter bird census is the nation's longest-running formal citizen science project, now in its 124th year. Between December 14th and January 5th, tens of thousands of volunteers survey virtually every corner of Wisconsin and much of North America, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Pacific Islands. This project helps estimate bird species populations and distributions and discover unusual birds in unexpected places. The Christmas bird count has confirmed, for example, a growing sense that the overall number of birds in the Western Hemisphere is declining. Nonetheless, this past Saturday, area birders were delighted by the sights and sounds of a remarkable variety of avian species. In downtown and northeast Madison alone, 48 species were identified on the dark, rainy day. I'm going to give a little shout-out here to my daughter Iris and friends Evie and Paul and Clara. Uh, We all were among the 23 volunteers in this area, and we were treated to the spectacular sight of a great horned owl in Highstand Park and a bald eagle swooping down to try to catch coots on Lake Monona. For more birding stories and reflections on the importance of the Audubon Christmas bird count, I'm happy to be joined today in the studio by three Madison birders who helped organize and take part in the count. We have with us today Dr. Jeff Galligan, co-founder of the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin and a member of the Badgerland Bird Alliance's Board of Directors and a steering committee member of Bird City, Wisconsin. Welcome back to A Public Affair, Jeff. Thank you, Douglas. Glad to be here. Great to have you. And we also have with us Brenna Marsicek, Director of Communication and Outreach for the Badgerland Bird Alliance, formerly Madison Audubon. Welcome, Brenna. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we have Sean Radcliffe, a Wisconsin master naturalist, fledgling birder, and Madison area coordinator for the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin. Thanks for being here, Sean. Yo, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is great to have you all in the studio and to talk about what I was hoping would be a mostly joyful subject uh, for this time of year. Um, of course, there are some some ongoing issues with bird populations we should talk about as well, but um, we're going to bring some bird joy to this conversation, hopefully, and to everybody listening today. And speaking of you listening, welcome. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for my guests about the Christmas bird count or local bird populations or would like to share a bird story with us or you were out counting on Saturday and you want to share what your experience was like, please do give us a call at 608 Two five six two zero zero one extension nine. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, we're going to get started today. First of all, um, with you, Brenna, um, to tell us a little bit about the background of the Audubon Christmas Bird Count. This event has a long history. Tell us uh, how it got started and how it has evolved over the years. It does. Thank you. So as you mentioned in your introduction, this is the longest running bird citizen science program or community science program 
in the nation. It started in 1900, so we just completed the 100, or we're in the the season of the mm-hmm. 124th Christmas bird count. It's amazing. So um, this got started because of a need to protect birds that. Um, you know, the, the issue at that time in the late 1800s were, was that there there was a lot of overhunting done. Um, so this tradition got started to replace a different tradition. The original one was on Christmas for hunters to go out and have a competition to see who could kill the most birds and bring them back um, to, their, to their gathering. Uh, so to replace that... Frank, uh, I'm looking for his name, Frank Chapman, who is an ornithologist, started the Christmas bird count as a way to celebrate and look for birds and enjoy them out in nature instead of um, trying to kill them. <laughs> so the Christmas bird count started in 1900. The The program has really changed over the years. Uh, so it's really grown and formalized. Uh, there's a a pretty specific process for how to organize a count and and how to get people involved. So now it's it's a really solid citizen science program that has a very long um, long term data set to go with it that helps scientists of all sorts be able to understand what's happening with bird populations throughout the country. So it's um it's a really great way for people to see which birds are here in the winter to be able to go outside and enjoy um, some bird watching and just being with friends and seeing habitats in different times of the season. Um, and, and it's a great way for people to connect with each other and build community in a time of year where, you know, there's a lot of community going on, you know, in, in the end of December, but it's a, a nice way to hang out with people in a nature type way. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, do you want to add anything to that perspective on the event's history? Yeah, I think uh, Brenna did a great job. I, the, the first count, um, there were uh, 27 dedicated birders in 25 different counts ranging from Pacific Grove, California to Toronto, Canada, with most of them being centered in the Northeast United States. Mm-hmm. So 90 species were tallied. Uh, that first count, around 90 species. Uh-huh. Well, we've come a long way from there. I don't think I have the participant numbers at my fingertips. Um, any any numbers off the top of your head, Brenna, in terms of overall number of volunteers over the past few years? Yeah, so the Madison area count uh, is a very popular one for people to participate in. So we have an unusually high number of birders participate in the Madison area one, which includes the city of Madison, McFarland, Fitchburg, Middleton, um, a little bit of Sun Prairie, and Monona. let's see, anyone? Oh, Monona, of mm-hmm. course. So uh, we we usually get a couple hundred volunteers come out to participate. Um, this year, right before I came in, I tallied up. We're still collecting data, so it's a, not a total count, but we're almost to a 200 volunteers for this year. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, nationally and internationally, we're talking about thousands of people involved in this yeah, event. Yeah, tens right? of yeah. thousands, yes. Yeah. So it's come a long ways from that first uh, humble origins. Yeah. So you mentioned it's a citizen science project. Let's spend a little more time on that and what it means and what the significance of this is. Um, 
Anybody want to jump sure. on that one? I can, I can yeah. take that one. Um, so citizen science or community science um, is, a, is a way for people who are not trained in biology or whatever the science is that you're looking at to be able to participate in research in collaboration with professional researchers. So usually there's someone who's organizing the program that, that has a scientific question that they're asking and they work with volunteers to usually give training, sometimes give supplies or materials that they'll need, and then a way for people to collect data so that many people in a greater expanse of space and time can collect data, which is much better than one person or a few people trying to do this. So this is a way to sort of harness the, the curiosity and the willingness of the community members to help gather uh, research data. Mm -hmm. So um, this is one example of a citizen science program, Christmas Bird Count, but there are also um, ones that look at fossils or water quality, or uh, we do a, a number of programs through Badgerland Bird Alliance where we look at bald eagle nesting and kestrel nesting and birds that run into windows and a number of other things. Mm -hmm. So um, this is just one of many topics that citizen science can mm -hmm. work around. So the basic idea is to get people out there on the land making original observations and use the power of people being spread out, um, making observations to get a good sense of what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. Great. I think another thing worth mentioning is eBird, uh, which is done up through Cornell University. And anytime anyone goes out birding and wants to uh, track what they're seeing and and um, how many they're seeing and what they're seeing, any time of year, any place in the world, you can upload that data into into eBird. And uh, you know the data points coming in in the hundreds of thousands from around the world every day just add to a huge body of work that show all kinds of things about where birds are, where they're moving to, where they're. Um, um, decreasing and, and all kinds of great things. So I think that that in itself is just a monstrous project, and it does a lot of great, great good worldwide. It also yeah. documents. Sorry, it also documents when unusual birds show up in places that they don't typically mm -hmm. go. So like this year, there were flamingos in Wisconsin, and through the power of eBird, that was better able doc better able to be documented and. Uh, to some extent shared with other people. I feel like we shouldn't let that slide by before we continue. <laughs> um, did any of you get to see the flamingos? Yes, well, I've got a, an interesting story about that. Um, okay. So they were first seen on Lake Michigan. Uh, I think it was um, Fort Washington. They were there for like one day, and then somehow they moved up into the uh, uh, Wisconsin River system there. And um, I had to go to a conference in Miami, and when I was getting on the plane to come back home, I saw that they'd been refound up uh, at Pettenwell Lake. And so I'm leaving Miami thinking, if I get home, I can probably get in the car and take my kayak and go up there and try to find them. And that's exactly what I did. And I got there just before dark and um, paddled out into the lake where they were and, and got to see them. <laughs> so the idea of coming from, yeah. from Miami, which is where you'd more likely see them occasionally, uh, up to Wisconsin to see flamingos was was an interesting thing. <laughs> uh, were they easy to spot? <laughs> they they were really the easy distance, because they were yeah. standing out in the lake. There was yeah. a very uh, like a sandbar, so it was only maybe six inches deep, and they were just all standing there sleeping. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to get up to them. 
It's a great example of the ways that, um, you know, having people being out observing and cataloging those observations uh, helps our understanding of just how fluid the movement of birds is, right? And how birds will show up in places where, where we don't expect them. And um, I think we should talk a little bit then about conservation efforts and how all this data being accumulated helps guide conservation efforts. Um, Brenna, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there, this data that's collected through the Christmas bird count is made available to pretty much anyone who can use it for research purposes and for other purposes. But, um, you know, this this means that someone who's looking at the long-term trends of maybe uh, wintertime temperatures and distribution of waterfowl or something, um, they would be able to do that through downloading the historical data that was collected through Christmas bird count for many decades. So um, through Christmas bird count, you document what the the high and the low temperature was, uh, what type of, if there was any precipitation. So there's lots of additional data beyond just the bird presence and absence and abundance. Um, so, So people can incorporate those data into the questions that they're asking. So you could look at climate change related questions or you could look at land use changes questions and and all of this data is available for free. Anything anybody wants to add about conservation in particular in relation to this data? Yeah, I think I think Brenda hit it real well. Okay. And, and there are some efforts in some parts of Wisconsin right now to uh, uh, restore habitats that have been lost and, and some of the initial findings are, are pretty um, uh, promising in terms of when you you know replace natural habitats then birds that maybe have receded from that area because of the loss will come back. And this is based on what we've been learning by people making observations through events like the Christmas bird count for, or eBird? Absolutely yeah. I think that all plays into it. Yeah. I want to remind folks that you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today about the Audubon Christmas Bird Count with Brenna Marsicek, Jeff Galligan, and Sean Radcliffe of the Badgerland Bird Alliance and the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin. If you'd like to join the conversation, you have a question about the Christmas Bird Count, you have an experience, or just a question about birds, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to take the conversation wherever folks would like to take it in relation to birds, and in particular, birds in the wintertime here in Wisconsin. We'll talk about that a little bit more here shortly, what kinds of birds folks are seeing. Sean, I want to bring you in here. Um, You're relatively new to this event, the, the Christmas bird count. What were your impressions, and what got you interested? Uh, Let's see. So I've been birding for just over a year. I went out with the BIPOC Birding Club last November. So this is my second official Christmas bird count. Um, And I think like my number one life change around getting into birding was it's getting my homebody butt outside in the winter when normally I'd just be like cozied up with a mug of tea. Mm -hmm. But now I'm outside and I'm actually really excited to be outside because all the dang leaves are out of my way so I can see these birds. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really gave me a totally different perspective on really enjoying and looking forward to this aspect of the winter instead of dreading it. So that I would say is a major, major mental shift with starting birding and loving this part of the winter. 
Yeah, that's that's great. A great perspective to think about how um, something people don't often think about doing in the wintertime, birding, has helped you actually enhance your appreciation of birding, Precisely. it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your day on Saturday. Oh, okay. So we were a little trepidatious because we were looking at the weather and thinking, oh man, is it going to rain? I think we escaped uh, most of the precip. So it was, what, surprisingly balmy. Um, we got out there with a group of, was it 13 people, Jeff? Yeah, 13. Yeah, 13 people. Um, we saw a total of 26 species, um, which ties our record with last year. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then, let's see, we're looking at a lot of woodpeckers, which, mm-hmm. again, it's fun to see them. You can see their, like, little perfect round nest holes in the old dead trees. Leave up your dead trees if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and just really enjoyed the camaraderie of walking around with folks. Like, it was truly a lovely day. And about how long were you out? Uh, I'd say, what, three hours? Yeah. yeah, three hours. Yeah. And we made a special trip over to an area just north of the airport, too, which was really cool. Didn't know you could go over there. And we saw a kestrel just hovering over a field. I have never seen a kestrel. I did not know they hovered like that, just like looking for some chow down on that great big wide uh-huh. open field. So that was also a really cool experience. Was this out in Cherokee Marsh? It or? was It was at the airport. Oh, it was the airport at, itself? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. They were, great. it was out way out there we found yeah. it yeah it was yeah. way out there but it was the only kestrel scene in the uh, madison circle so i've high. heard that uh kestrels which used to be very common and now that you mention i i don't think i've seen one in years um are in trouble or they've been declining um any anyone want to share any thoughts about that yeah so kestrels have really taken a hit in terms of their overall population it's over the last 60 years they've declined by more than 50 percent according to breeding bird uh, data. So the reasons for it are varied and not perfectly understood. Um, so a combination likely of habitat loss, they are really reliant on grasslands, both for their food and for their nesting. Um, they nest in old trees, dead tree cavities, um, though they do also readily take to nest boxes. Uh, human-made structures. So um, having more abundant nesting options would be great for kestrels. Um, They also are likely facing some uh, pesticide issues because a lot of the prey that they eat, especially the first years, are insects, large grasshopper-sized insects. Um, And they also eat things like snakes and voles and other things that decline as habitats are degraded. So kestrels are are a species that are super fun to see. A lot of times when I see them, they're perched on a power line looking for food or eating food. A lot of times they'll have like a mouse type creature hanging from their talons. Um, so keep your eyes on the power lines if you're driving. If you're not, I mean, if you're riding, not if you're driving, <laughs> maybe don't and keep such small, a close yeah, eye. Right. Aren't they the smallest raptor? They're the smallest yeah. falcon, yes. Uh, they're really beautiful. So the males and females have a different coloration to them. So the females are brown and black with some light brown. And they're, they're sort of barred on the back. Um, the males have more of like a bluish gray back and then brown and black wings. So they're, they're really beautiful birds and they're super fun to watch because like Jeff and Sean were saying they have the ability to hover and they they keep their heads still so they can really focus on what they're eating or what they're looking at 
to eat down below. Um, but they're able to just like flap their wings really fast and hold themselves still in place so that they can uh, really hone in on, on their target. And so they're fun to watch and they're they're really great to have um, around just because they're they're fun to see and they're great for pest control and other types of things. Mm-hmm. And remarkable to, to have seen one then the other day, Sean, uh, on so one of your first bird counts. Yeah. Still so jazzed, yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, people might be wondering a little bit about how this works, this bird count. Um, you're covering a huge geographic area, both here in Madison, but of course nationally and internationally as well. How is this set up? Um, it, it may be hard to imagine how to do a reliable survey of little tiny birds in a, in a big area. Um, who wants to tackle that one? Oh, uh, sure. Yep, I can take that. So um, the Madison, so each of the Christmas bird count circles are 15 miles in diameter. So that's a standardized setup for all Christmas bird count circles. And so each area of Wisconsin has their own circle. There are circles all over the country and um, other places where they do Christmas bird counts. So depending on where you live, you can look up Christmas bird count circles near you and find one that you can participate in. So the circle coordinator uh, selects a date. A lot of times people will do it on the same date every year. So for example, the Madison area Christmas bird count is always the first Saturday of the window of time that you can do Christmas bird counts in. Some people like to do it on Christmas Eve. Some people do it whenever their volunteers can do it and they just pick the date. So they go out on just that one day to do the Christmas bird count. All of the areas in the count are sort of divided up so that they're assigned to a person or a set of people. And that ensures that the area is surveyed, but only one time. So there isn't Ideally, double counting, but all of as much of the area as you can is surveyed for birds. In Madison, because we have um, the lakes here, the the areas are split up into twenty three different sections, and each of those sections has an area captain. So those captains organize their volunteers and the plan for the day for their section, and then. At the end of the day, they send it all in to me, who compiles all of the data for the Madison area and gives the overall summaries. Um, so, you know, for other circles, they split it up in different ways. Like, I, I just participated in the Waterloo Christmas bird count on Thursday, and we surveyed at our Fable Grove Sanctuary that's out there. So they had, I think, 11 or 12 areas that they broke the circle up into, and and so it really varies based on who's organizing the circle and what type of habitat you need to be able to cover and, and to look at. So the Madison one has a, has a lot of people involved. We have 23 areas and each of those has between like five and I think your group, Douglas, had like 18 people in it. Your whole oh, area. Side, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the groups can be pretty large and then they're all kind of divvied up and everybody yep. gives or gets their assignment for where to go birding. Yep. Um, and you mentioned the lakes, Brenna. How how does this present particular challenges for counting birds? And uh, maybe Sean and, and Jeff, do you want to tell us about experiences with counting birds on the lakes? Well, I think the, the, the areas that have uh, uh, sizable water usually get more species. I, I'm the captain for Area 3, and we have 
no water except oh, yeah. part of the uh, Starkweather Creek. So um, we don't get as many. I think that uh, the water allows you to get some some waterfowl species. As long as you've got uh, people that have high-powered scopes, you can usually scope most most of whatever water you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were some pretty cool birds uh, yeah. seen, like scoters and things like that, out there on, on Lake Mendota. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I I think the challenge is is that binoculars probably won't work for really adequately surveying a larger body of water, mm-hmm. but scopes can do that. Uh-huh. One of the tricky things that always comes into play with water is that the the lakes are kind of there are imaginary lines that run through the lakes to divide up the lakes into different sections that are assigned to different area captains. So you have to keep that imaginary boundary in mind as you're looking out onto the lake and you see this great bird, maybe it's a common loon. And there aren't very many common loons that are seen on the Christmas bird count. So if you see one and then you also find out that someone in the next section over also saw a common loon, you have there's a lot of communication that needs to happen mm-hmm. to make sure that people aren't counting the same bird more than once. So that's definitely a challenge. You know how far away the birds are, the water's moving, sometimes they're diving under and sometimes they're flying away and then flying back. And so there's a lot of uh, challenges that come with water. Uh, There are a lot of challenges that come with other habitats Mm -hmm. too, but water is especially tricky for getting you know, a good enough eye on the bird to be able to see what it is and then... Make sure you're getting the accurate tally. Right, right. Yeah, in terms of being accurate too, do you mix up real experienced people with more novice birders when possible? I I guess that that might depend on the... uh, uh, which area it is. With with us, Uh we get a lot of uh, uh, new people. I think we had out of the 13, there were six of them this year that were, were, were first time. Uh, bird counter. Oh, so great. a lot of people that come to our um, BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin events are are new birders mm-hmm. because we really do try to advertise ourselves as a place for people that are just learning to come and not feel any pressure or stress and, and um, you know, uh, get some help learning how to identify birds and things like that. Absolutely. The Feminist Bird Club also does a similar type of event where they, they take part of a section and their club surveys at... Um, a couple of cemeteries on the near on the west side and they also really get a lot of new birders that come to their um their christmas bird count event so you know it's fun when you have a a big group to be able to have new birders be able to join and learn from each other and help each other feel excited and a lot of people like that that's how they get started with with birding is those group events that make them feel more comfortable and yeah. confident in, in their experience. Um, but depending on what the area is, sometimes uh, an area captain will need a volunteer to survey this park and there's no one else to go with them. So they have to be experienced enough that they can identify a bird species um, well enough that they can confidently mark it down on their sheet. Mm. So it really, it depends yeah. on the area. Yeah. And Sean, speaking of people relatively new to birds, um, what drew you to birding and getting involved with the BIPOC Birding Club? Oh, okay. Actually, it's Jeff, this guy sitting right next to me. It was Jeff specifically because we were doing the Wisconsin Master Naturalist training class together. And I just noticed how I'm going to be very directly complimenting you, Jeff. <laughs> oh, boy, um, yeah. Jeff is He's just turning such... red. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is like 
immensely generous um, and very, very patient, like a wonderful teacher. So I'm coming into this. I'm mostly a plant person originally. I love plants. I love gardening. Um, but I just really appreciated how kind Jeff was. And I was like, oh, I want to learn from this guy. I want to hang out with this guy. So, the, you know, the magnetism of your personality, Jeff, you All really right. sold me on it. Well, that's good. I'm glad because you've <laughs> been you've been so beneficial to, to everything. Happy to help. And it's great to have. It's just great to have a. Uh, you know, perspective of somebody who is newer because we have so many people that are newer and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. There's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and we never uh, try to lord knowledge over anybody who doesn't have it because we all started somewhere and there's always something to learn. So we love new birders and Sean is a great advocate for that now. New birders, questions yeah. welcome. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and speaking of questions, I want to put a call out to folks again to, to join the conversation. If you have a question for our expert birders here, uh, new birders here, um, <laughs> give us a call, 608-256-2001, extension 9. I'm talking about the Audubon Christmas bird count with Brenna Marsicek, Jeff Galligan, and Sean Radcliffe of the Badgerland Bird Alliance and the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin. And you are listening to a public affair on WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Um, speaking of veteran birders, again, Jeff, um, how many years have you been doing this bird count and what kind of changes have you noticed here in Madison over the years? Well, actually, this is only my third year uh, doing the bird count. Uh, I've been an area captain, thanks to Brenna, for three years now. So that's been a lot of fun. I love it. I love the uh, community. I love what it what it represents. Um so I, I don't have longitudinal type data for that, but but I do notice like last year I had a, a Carolina wren at my feeder during the bird count, which which helped. Uh, so we were able to get that, um, and we've seen a last year we saw a harrier as well, which is relatively unusual for this mm-hmm. time of year, and the kestrel was was fairly unusual for this time of year. So we, we are seeing some birds like that. Mm-hmm. But I can't. I think Brenna probably could okay. speak a little better to what uh, you know. The longitudinal Yeah, you know, it's it's there. interesting. I brought up the weather data earlier because I was just looking at it this morning for the the however many years they have it recorded for the Madison area. And I wrote down the highest temperature for a count that was recorded in the Madison area Christmas bird count was forty eight degrees in two thousand six. We were at forty four degrees this year. Um and many of the more recent years were above or at freezing. So, you know, the the temperature really does change a lot about what what birds are doing and even what birds are here. Like right now, the lakes are still open and a lot of lakes in Wisconsin are still open. And so a thought is that waterfowl haven't needed to migrate through yet. And so, you know, there are differences in abundance and and presence and absence for, for bird species as it relates to temperature and what the climate is doing. So, you know, I can't say I haven't done a a real deep dive into the historical data and how things have changed. Um, But I did notice that this morning that that the temperature definitely has uh, increased in a a trend over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do have some sort of uh, national or international numbers for the Christmas bird count, and there has been an overall decline for those uh, last year, despite a record number of participants and geographic area covered. The count recorded the fewest individual birds in 25 years. Um, is is this your sense of the w- way things are going for birds? 
generally? Well, you did mention in your introduction some studies that have been done in the past few years about, um, you know, the the decline in bird populations overall. So there was a study published in 2019 that showed that we lost 3 billion birds since, what was it, 1970? Um, that's And th- those are breeding birds. So uh, those are birds that no longer are making uh, any young and, and, you know, bringing the population of that species at least to its normal level. So those species are are declining, and that's a really serious thing to take three billion breeding birds out of out of the population. Um, so you know, overall, there has been um, a documented decline in the number of birds, and Christmas bird count can really enhance that, especially when you um, combine it with things like breeding bird atlas surveys that are done during the summer, so that you get a more comprehensive picture of what populations are doing. Mm-hmm. We had a caller um, call in, uh, not on the line anymore, but Rich uh, wanted to know about the swans. Uh, I assume he's talking about the tundra swans. Um, I see them on Lake Monona. I don't know if they're on Lake Mendota as well because I don't get over there much, but um, tell us about the tundra swans. I mean, I know this year I've only seen them one day so far. I mean, they were there one day because uh, I live on Winnicott Road in Monona, so I right across the street they're all along the shore when they're there, and that's really it. I've only seen them that that overnight this year, and I believe, like Brenner was saying, the the weather and the open water I think doesn't it, it doesn't require birds that feed in the water to move as quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think we probably still have that to see the the big push. There might be more coming I, yet. Still. That's my that's yeah. my my thought. Yes. I remember them being here around Christmas and after if there's open water. I think there's probably yeah. enough open water that they're yeah. not in a big rush. Yeah. Um, tell us, Jeff, a little bit more about these birds. You know, they come from so far. Yeah, they, yeah. They, one of the several species that come from the ten- tundra in the far north uh, either move through here or spend uh, migrate to this area to spend uh, winter months. Yep. So it's it's a wonderful thing to see it, and I mean to, to hear them and. And to see those uh, big, beautiful white birds is just just wonderful, especially when you see hundreds of them at a time. Yeah. And that beautiful cacophony they make is just just wonderful. A lot of people think of winter as kind of a, a downtime for birds. You know, a lot, like all of the fun birds have left, you know. <laughs> um, but there are actually quite a few cool birds that come in and winter here because it's warmer here than what they're used to. You know, so like dark-eyed juncos come in for the winter and they're such a fun bird they come to feeders they're all over the place you can they're they're a really fun bird to see they have kind of a dark gray back and a white belly and what do you think like a pinkish beak? yeah pinkish pinkish beak yeah yeah and they're a spar- member of the sparrow family so you'll see them lower like in brush and on the ground and in yep. little flocks usually they're like on the ground underneath the feeders eating kind of whatever falls down mm-hmm. and they're really cute and and they have a nice little chirpy noise that they make so they're really a fun winter bird to get american tree sparrows come in in the winter you know there's still a, a whole bunch of species that stay in wisconsin throughout the winter so you know it's it we definitely don't have as many species here in the winter as we do right. in other parts of the year but there are some really fun ones to see still yeah and you get the snow buntings and the and the uh, um snowy owls and rough-legged hawks all come down from the far north in the tundra so it's it's pretty cool to see that 
We have another caller with us. Uh, Patty is on the line. Welcome to A Public Affair. Patty. Hi, Douglas. Thank you so much for the show. So my question is, if you're out doing a count and you hear a bird, but you don't actually see the bird, can you still count that as a count? Yeah, great question. So that does count. If you're confident in the song or call that you hear, then you can count that as a, as a, a bird that you can tally. Yes. Did you hear anything okay. on Saturday that you want to share? Uh, no, but I, I was also curious if um, like the, the backyard bird count at home, if that also ties in to the Christmas bird count and if you could talk about that. I'm not as familiar with the backyard bird. Um, let's see, it's the backyard feeder count, I think, is in right. February. Is that right? Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're kind of similar in idea that you get a snapshot of populations in winter, um, but it's, it's not the same data set. And I think that one's done by Cornell, whereas National Audubon coordinates the Christmas bird count, if I'm not mistaken on the feeder count one so um so yeah so it's the same kind of concept and it's also a great citizen science program and and wonderful for people to get involved with because you don't even have to go outside with that one um you can just watch from your dining room table or wherever you like to watch birds and I'm glad you mentioned um, feeders. Thank you so much for the call, Patty. Patty Peltecos, oh, um, frequent <laughs> Ward contributor. Um, and you mentioned feeders. Um, feeders are also counted for the, the Christmas bird count as well, right? Are there some people that just stay home, basically, and, yeah. and watch their feeders? That's right. Yep. Some people um, like to watch their feeders for a variety of reasons, and those uh, tallies are accepted. So there's a different way of counting your feeder birds. So instead of counting every single chickadee that comes to your feeder, um, you count you, t- you keep track of the most number of that species you see at one single time. So like the highest number of chickadees maybe is eight that you see at one single time. The reason behind that is it's likely that birds are coming in and out back and forth and, and coming multiple times to the feeder to get food. So you don't want to count the same chickadee 16 times. Uh-huh. Um, so people at the end of the day will send in to either their area captain or to me, depending on how they sign up for this. Um, They'll send in their list of the highest number of each species that they see for the day. So one woman sent in, Deanne and McFarland sent in, I think there were probably 25 species on her list. It was incredible. She lives right on, right on the lake. So, um, and then other people might see just, you know, a handful of birds for the day. This year was definitely slower than other years. So um, there were fewer feeder uh, birds that people reported. But Deanne had a good day. <laughs> Did you That's all notice good. that as well? My experience was it was slower. There were fewer birds out and about on Saturday morning. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess I would say so. We we substituted a few from last year, this year. So there were, although we tied our record, there there felt like there were four or five we could have seen easily that we did not. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that was the the feedback I got from mm-hmm. a lot of the area captains and participants was that it was just a slower year, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it was kind of gloomy and it was really about to rain for most of yeah. the day. Yeah, sure so, was. Or it yeah. was actively raining. So yeah. it's it was not a great day to be out birding or to be a bird maybe. But, and to see the birds, because the light, yeah. when it's overcast like that, the light is so flat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it can be a little difficult to yeah. get beyond the silhouette. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I want to remind listeners that you're listening to Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today about the Audubon Christmas Bird Count with Brenna Marsicek, Jeff Galligan, and Sean Radcliffe of the Badgerland Bird Alliance and the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin. There's still time to give us a call, 608 256 62001 extension 9 if you have a question or a bird story or comment to share with us. Um, Sean, what has helped you in as you've gone out with with birders over the past year? Or so what has helped you learn how to more confidently uh, make those mm. identifications? Let's see. So I guess the number one thing that I've really, really enjoyed about going out with a group of experienced birders is that more eyeballs and more ears is incredibly beneficial. I did not realize until, you know, I went out with the group a couple times and we're just seeing stuff, seeing stuff, seeing stuff. Because when you're with a group of 10 plus people who are all like casting their attention in different directions, you're just going to catch so, so, so much more. And they know what to look for. Mm -hmm. They know how these birds are moving through the trees or moving along the ground. Mm -hmm. When I might just be walking right past those low bushes and someone is like, wait, 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 there might be some good stuff in there. Come on back and look with me. So it's very cooperative. It's very communicative. It's an immensely positive experience. Yeah, you described that so well. You said uh, casting your attention. Um, that uh, That's really what birding is all about, is casting your attention out into the world. Yeah. Right? I noticed it takes me, like on Saturday, I noticed it took about five minutes to remember, okay, this is a different kind of attention, right, that I'm used yes. to necessarily using when I'm sitting <laughs> at my desk or whatever. <laughs> and, and you you regroup. Um, we have another caller. Iris is on the line with a question. Go ahead. Um, if it's too cold or too rainy, would, we still, would you still be able to do the Christmas bird count? Thank you for, That's a good question. for your question, Iris. I'm a, you're making me a proud papa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Iris, that is a good question. We actually um, had talked about that as a group this year because the forecast was calling for some intense uh, stretches of rain on Saturday. So, no, we, we don't cancel for rain unless uh, the weather is dangerous. Uh, the Christmas bird count goes on. So you see what you can find. And and unless it's dangerously cold or icy or whatever the conditions are, the, the Christmas bird count goes on. That's right. Thank you, Iris. You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Iris. <laughs> Iris and I have been counting now for four years together, and it's a it's a great way to spend spend time with your wow. kids. It, it really say. is. Yeah, it really is. Um, I'm sure maybe you each have experiences with that as well. Birding with my kids is chaotic, <laughs> so <laughs> it's a lot of fun. But yeah. I wouldn't say we see or hear a whole lot. But we we try to go out owling, especially mm. in January and February. Uh, there are a couple areas by where we live that are really fun to just walk around at, you know, six or seven o'clock at night in mm-hmm. the winter and and listen for owls of different sorts. We usually get at least a great horned owl and sometimes we'll even see one. You know, you can often see the silhouette or, mm. you know, it's it's a lot of fun. So highly recommend owling with kids. 
we were about three-fourths of the way through our walk the other day, and the kids were definitely starting to just, you know, climb on logs and, and play and stuff. And then all of a sudden, this owl, uh, we spotted this great horned owl, and it was one of the best looks I've had at an owl in a long time, and everybody was so excited and ran over, you know, and that kind of sense of wonder is amazing to see. Yeah. Well, um, we have about 10 minutes left, and so much more we could talk about still. Um I think it would be great. We were talking about declining numbers, but it would be great to talk about what bird species are doing really well, and particularly here in Madison, that folks maybe you can see a lot um, that people may not realize. Yeah, so in general, the the study that I had referenced earlier um, showed that waterfowl are doing well, despite birds like grassland birds and and woodland birds um, declining, there are certain groups that are doing pretty fine, pretty okay. And waterfowl is one of them. So different types of ducks and different types of swans. And there are a lot of sandhill cranes that are super fun to see. And everybody enjoys um, when they get to see a sandhill crane, especially their babies. I mean, you don't see them on Christmas bird count, but I don't know anyone who doesn't like ooh and ah over a sandhill crane colt. Uh, so, you know, there they're, are, and they're not waterfowl, but, you know, it's, it's another species that is doing well. Um, yeah, do you want to add any more, Jeff or Sean? No, I think you're, I, I think that's that's a pretty good, uh, I think you've got it pretty good there. Yeah, I think the sandhill cranes are really, they're a real good conservation success story. Uh, it wasn't that long ago when there was, I think, less than 20 breeding pair in Wisconsin. And so now to come back up to thousands and thousands of birds is just phenomenal. So the cranes remind me of turkeys too, of course, as mm-hmm. well. Big, big comeback that you yeah. can see all yes. over Madison. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Big flocks of them walking around yeah. in neighborhoods. Yeah. And yeah. yep. Yep. We have another um, person who called in, not on the line, but Brian has called in and asked uh, with our cold Midwest wind- weather, how do smaller songbirds survive and thrive the winter? And those of you who are out on Saturday, you get to see this, all these little songbirds, um, you know, making their way through the winter, although it wasn't that cold on yeah, well. on Saturday. <laughs> they'll still be here, right? Many of them that, yeah. that we counted. Birds are really good at dealing with the weather. So um, one way that they deal with cold is by fluffing up their feathers. It's sort of like wearing a, a down jacket, right? Like a puffy jacket. So they insulate Uh, better by having their feathers kind of fluffed up and that traps the air close to their body where it keeps um, that air warm. So that's one great way that they do that. They find shelter in thicker shrubs and um, trees that don't lose all of their leaves. So like evergreen trees, Uh, they, some species have like, um, like ducks have a cool like circulation system through their feet and their legs that help the blood flow in the cold of winter to keep them warm enough. Maybe not toasty warm, but warm enough. Um, anything yeah, else? Yeah, I think that that's, I think, yeah, that's good. I'm sure there are lots of other. And finding food too, right? They have to, yeah. to yes, know. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, some birds switch like, like uh, if we have over wintering populations of, of robins, for instance, there's like a small population in the uh, University of Wisconsin Arboretum, and they will switch from worms and insects to berries and crab apples oh, and things like that to survive for the winter yeah. if they've got enough of that food source. Yeah. But well, birds like, uh, you know, woodpeckers will 
find and hunt maggots and insects that are spending the winter inside trees and things like that so they can still find them. Yep. All winter long, that food All supply is still there. Yep. Yeah. And you were talking, Sean, earlier about learning from uh, other birders about, you know, how to look and where and yeah. looking down in shrubs and like what kinds of places, particularly in winter, birds are going to be hanging out. What did you notice the other day about where you were seeing birds this oh, time of year? Let's see. Okay. So again, dead trees. I get so excited about dead trees now because <laughs> they're just pretty consistently good stuff. Checking uh-huh. that out. Oh, now I've learned to be very excited about evergreens because mm-hmm. um, like Brenna was saying, you know, it provides that like extra like little barrier insulation, a little warmer in there. Um, I've learned to look for owls in evergreens, pine trees. Um I'm not sure what else. That's what comes to mind anyway. Yeah. Brush piles are big too for mm-hmm. some some birds, you know, the, the the sparrows and things like that love brush piles and you can even create a brush pile in your backyard and and be surprised what might actually overwinter in that brush pile. Take that old Christmas tree out there, right? I'm telling you. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's Very right. Simple. Um, what else would you love to share all of you about your experiences this Saturday or about the Christmas bird count in general? I've been putting all these questions to you, but are there experiences or highlights for you from from the years or even just past Saturday that that jump out at you? I think for a lot of people, the fun of Christmas bird count is the people that you do it with. Mm. You know, a lot of people are, you know, doing surveys in the same types of areas with the same people year after year. And so it's like a nice tradition. And and some people really like meeting new birders that are, are new to their group or or just new to birding. And and so and some people like me like to go out without my kids and without anyone talking to me. And it's just me in the woods listening and looking for birds. That morning it was it was so nice. So I, I I think one of the joyful things about Christmas bird count is that you can do it the way that you want to do it. And there's there's an opportunity for you to do, to go birding and to experience nature however you like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, you know, beautifully it, said. Yeah, beautifully <laughs> said. It, it, I do a lot of planning events and things for the for the uh, BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin. It's just another way to appeal to people to come out and get some exercise and, and join the community spirit and, 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 and also, you know, just the benefit of the uh, com- citizen science is really nice. Yeah. Um, if people are looking for kind of reports or information coming out of these counts, where's a good place to find out um, what we're learning based on the Christmas bird count or other efforts at, at uh surveying birds. Yeah, so I will be publishing the results of this year's uh, count in a few days. I have to get all the data in first and compile it all and then double check it all and then share it with the captains they get to know first. So um, I'll put that out on our website and also on our social media in a few days. And then I also in January bring together all of the results for the counts that are done in South Central Wisconsin. And there are 11 that are being done in our part of Wisconsin this year. So there are tons of birders out looking for tons of birds. And it's a really fun way to compile all of that and like show the incredible effort that this community of birders is doing in Wisconsin. So um, I put that on our website in January as well with in in partnership with the other uh, circle compilers. 
And it's great to see how many birds are actually here in the cold of winter. I, I think a lot of people that aren't maybe familiar with birds think, oh, they all leave. Yeah. Or most, But there's a significant number of birds that stay or come here. So there's there's plenty to see. And yeah, we love it. Absolutely. We have one more um, caller who's called in, not on the line, but Susan wants to know about feeding birds. Um, should we be leaving food out for birds? Susan asks. That's a great question. So in winter, it's it's a great thing to do for birds. You can feed birds as, um, as a way to supplement their diet. Another great way to support birds in winter is to have a bird bath. And in Wisconsin, it needs to be a heated bird bath. They make really nice, low-powered ones that keep it just warm enough so that the water doesn't freeze. Birds need to be able to access water in the winter, of course. So that's a great way to not only do something nice for birds, but also a nice way to draw birds in. You'll see a lot more of them in your feeder area if you have a a heated bird bath. So fun fact there. Um, But yes, feeding birds is a perfectly great thing to do, especially in the winter, um, in seasons where they need to be able to get insects or or different types of food sources. It's less important, but winter is great. And, and avoid feeding ducks bread and things like that, because that is not good for them, and it ends up killing them, actually, so... Yeah, that's that's Good the one. Know. That's the one kind of bird feeding that I would suggest not doing. Well, thank you all. I'm afraid we are out of our time for this hour today, but it's been a real pleasure having you all here. Um, I want to make sure, actually, just uh, real quick, do you have any events or ways that you want to uh, have invite people to get involved, um, Jeff and and Sean and Brenna, in terms of BIPOC Birding Club and Badgerland Bird Alliance? Um, so the BIPOC Birding Club has a Milwaukee event coming up on Saturday, January 6th, 1030 a.m. at the Milwaukee County Zoo. That is a learn to bird with the Zoological Society. Cool. So check out our website and social media for that. All right. And uh, Badgerland Bird Alliance also has a bunch of field trips coming up. We are just like the BIPOC Birding Club. We are crazy busy throughout the year with different types of field trips and outings. So lots to do. Um, you, you can check out our website for that. Great. Thank you. That's um, Brenna uh, Marsacek with Badgerland Bird Alliance. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, of course. Thank you. And we've had uh, Sean Radcliffe, Radcliffe with us from the BIPOC Birding Club as well. Thank you, Sean, for coming in. Oh, yeah. Happy to be here. <laughs> and Jeff Galligan from BIPOC Birding uh, Club as well of Wisconsin. Thank yeah. you, Jeff. Oh, great to be here. Love it. Yeah. Great to have you all here. Thanks for this conversation. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Sholly Pittman. If you've appreciated today's show, please share it on a public affairs online archive or wherever you find your podcast. Thank you, listeners, for joining us, and thank you especially to those folks who called in today here to a public affair at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show. Host Cole Erickson talks with Wisconsin author Allison Townsend about her new book, The Green Hour, A Natural History of Home.